Welcome to the Expert Network Team podcast. Where our goal is to inform and educate our listeners on matters related to finance, legal, insurance, accounting, and other interests that are of personal and business nature. We hope you will find our content useful as well as entertaining. The Expert Network Team consists of Carl Frank of AI Financial, Mike Miller of Miller and Associates CPAs, Jeff Cromendike of Security First Insurance Agency, and I'm Nathan Merrill. I'm an attorney at Goodspeed and Merrill. Together, our independent team combines our expertise to provide you insights and solutions, some straightforward, some profound, for real-life opportunities we see on a daily basis. We hope you enjoy the information contained in today's podcast and find it useful. If you'd like to learn more or desire to meet with any of the Expert Network team members in person, you can contact us at info at expertnetworkteam.com. That's I-N-F-O at expertnetworkteam.com. We encourage you to take advantage of a free consultation with any of our team members. Just mention this podcast when you schedule your appointment. Now on to today's podcast. So welcome back to uh, the Expert Network Team podcast. Uh, we are continuing on from our prior conversation with Lauren Snow. I'm here with uh, Carl Frank of AI Financial and uh, Jeff Cromendike of Security First Insurance Agency. And this is Nathan Merrill of Goodspeed and Merrill. And Lauren Snow is one of our crackpot uh, corporate attorneys. And in the previous discussion with her, she really educated us as to the types of intellectual property that are out there. We, we talked about patents and, and trade secrets, uh, trade dress, um, trade sec- well, I did trade secrets, uh, the trademarks and trademark. trade names. So we now know everything. We didn't t- discuss much on copyright. We could probably do, you know, consider a separate podcast to focus on copyright altogether. But um, given the nature of our conversation previously, I wanted to spend some time with you talking about once we do actually go out and get those rights perfected. So we either have a patent or we have um, some sort of perfected either trademark or trade dress. uh, What are the practical implications of, of having some intellectual property? And maybe uh, Jeff and Carl kind of come at it from their perspective as owners of intellectual property. As kind of, really ignorant guys who are very interested in the subject. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so if you once you do get the rights, you do have to uh, maintain and renew uh, whatever registrations you have. So for example, if you uh, file a trademark application in the state of Colorado, you have to renew that every five years. Uh, that's the same at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office as uh, a five-year renewal, and then you renew again between the ninth and 10th year. And you have to continue showing that you're still using the mark. Um, But aside from that, the most important step that every intellectual property owner has to to take is to actually use those rights. So if someone is using your trademark, and if people are just using your trademark willy-nilly, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office is going to see that as abandonment of the mark, and they will cancel your registration, or they won't allow you to enforce it if you haven't been enforcing it the entire time that you've had it. What does it mean to enforce a mark? So if someone is using the mark, that the what you need to be doing is monitoring use of it. So looking through uh, the trademark, uh, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office will publish what's called the Official Gazette, 
it comes out every Tuesday and you should be have you should have a watch on that too. If anybody's filing a trademark with your same name or with a similar logo, as soon as you see that application come up, then you want to send them a letter, um, what we call cease and desist letter. Lawyers love them. Um, we write them a lot, <laughs> but they are uh, basically what you're saying is like, hey, I see that you're using this mark at infringing upon my right to this mark. You're damaging me economically. You need to stop using it, or I'm going to take you to court to have a judge come in and say that you need to stop using it. I'm going to I'm going to challenge you on that a little bit. How many business owners do you know subscribe to whatever that digest is and and do a review of of marks out there? It's actually become a lot easier. Um, I and zero is the answer to the question, but it actually has become <laughs> a lot easier. Um, just over the past couple of years, there are now um, automatic uh, searches that you can put into the USPTO website. And so they'll let you know, they'll, they'll ping you. How accurate it is, I'm not really sure, but um, I would say it's good practice to be um, searching, you know, do Google searches of your marks every couple of months or do a full-blown full clearance search, which is hiring a company to search the use of the mark through throughout the website or, or and throughout state registrations. Um, those are things that, that you can be doing. That's, you know, good best practices to be uh, monitoring the use of the mark. But it, it comes up when people have, you know, when there's already, it's already a problem, right? Like people don't usually come to us until it's already a problem. So um, in that case, it comes down to, you know, really if, it, if it's a mark that someone has just started using, um, a lot of times there's, it's a lot easier to just tell them, you know, we already have this registration. We need you to back down. But um, it, it becomes a problem when someone's already spent a lot of money and a lot and, you know, has already generated some recognition in the community. Um, and then that's really when it comes down to the business owner will have to, you'll have to go to court, you know, you'll have to go to the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office to determine who has the better case to keep the so, using the mark. So what I hear you saying there is if you say you don't come across someone who's who's infringing on your mark and they build up a business around that mark and you haven't done anything to try to stop them, whether you knew of it or not, just the the fact that they have an established business with the mark makes it more difficult for you to assert priority rights against them. It's going back to the consumer protection part of it. So what the USPTO will ask is if you've generated enough of uh, recognition within consumers in your specific marketplace. Um, so that's shown through consumer surveys, things like that. If enough consumers will look at that mark and associate it with someone else, then yes, that, that is a way that you could lose your registration, even if you already, if you had already filed it beforehand. One of the, um, things that really gets me thinking about this is the example we talked about in our last podcast was security first. So security could mean a lot of things and, and security first could be a, um, uh, could be a person who, or a company that teaches you Taekwondo or personal defense. Right. right. And that would that, I mean, that might be something that you might not want people to be confused about. And so you go out and you, you issue a cease and desist letter against that company. Lauren, what are the odds? I mean, how is that going to work, right? That other company has the right to be called what they're doing, and it still right. seems relevant. I think that's a great question and a great example. Um, it would come down to 
I think the idea behind it is that you should know what's going on in your own industry. So you should know that if somebody is um, marketing the same product or service and they have a confusingly similar mark, you should be on top of that because you're, you know, you're operating in that industry. You should know that. If there's a separate industry that someone is operating in, that's Taekwondo services are not the same as financial or insurance services. So you're not going to be held to that same standard. Um, so you could coexist. You know, it, it could be that if you send a cease and desist and they say, well, we're not even in the same goods and services, there's no way any consumer is going to confuse the two of us. Um, I'm not even going to entertain that idea. I'm going to continue using it. That could be something you guys could coexist with. If there's, um, if you're, you know, really being um, aggressive about it, you could say, you know, I'll allow you to use this mark, but you can only use it with Taekwondo services. Once you start using other, you know, once you start going into other services or offering other products, then I'm going to have a problem. And then we're going to go back to the USPTO and let them decide. Yeah, that's really interesting. Fascinating. I mean, I think it'd be really hard to set up um, an investment company called Coca-Cola. Right. I mean, we have nothing to do with Coca-Cola, but I still couldn't do that. Right. And I think that's a really great point. Um, it, something like Coca-Cola has worldwide recognition and it's not too, um, too crazy to think that Coca-Cola isn't just making Coca-Cola. They make things like um, stuffed polar bears and they make other products too. So they probably don't have a trademark registration in every single category that you could but because they're so well known, they can enforce their brand by saying that these people are making, um, you know, the, something that Coca-Cola would probably never get into. But I don't want anyone in the uh, anyone in the marketplace to think that now Coca-Cola is getting into these products. So I'm going to take steps to stop your use of that. So even though it's something that you wouldn't right off the bat think that's oh that's definitely Coca-Cola now moving into the makeup industry. Coca-Cola could still enforce their brand and say, like, people might think that we would, and I don't want my name to be associated with your makeup because people know my brand so well. Again, kind of going back to the consumer protection idea. Right, right, right. And and it seems like um, some famous people, celebrities, sports athletes, you know, uh, reti retired presidents perhaps have a certain name brand, mm -hmm. right? And so they would want to protect that. And you couldn't just put that name. I mean, Jordan's a great example on, on anything. You'll get sued by the Jordan Corporation. Right. And it could be the, it could be a trademark issue and it could also be um, a use of their likeness or uh, a false association. So if right. you say, you know, if you put Jordan's name on it, then you don't, he's not, you know, if it's not something that he's already approved, he doesn't want people to think that this is something that he's approved and is endorsing. So it's the same similar idea, but even if he doesn't have, if, even if there are no trademarks that he's ever filed, he could still say that's a false association. You just stop using my name with whatever product you're creating. Yeah. Really, really fascinating. There was a case recently with some, um, a music star who put um, a red liquid in the bottom of a shoe, a Nike shoe, oh, right. and sold it, right? On it, right. It's Nike and it's not a Nike, and now they're being sued by Nike, right? One of the more uh, famous shoe cases, since you brought up shoes, is the Payless 
shoe case against or Adidas against Payless because Adidas has what four stripes on it and the Payless shoe had five stripes on it but it looked almost exactly the same unless you're really paying attention to the stripes um, and this was this was a massive massive lawsuit and uh, did you do you have much familiarity with that suit I don't I have another shoe one I can bring up after though okay <laughs> but uh, but yeah so so knockoffs I mean, that's yeah. what we put in the category of the And that's damaging the consumer, right? And that's why they probably lost. Because the consumer, the average consumer... Would get confused. Doesn't mean it's not distinct. It just is so similar that an average consumer could be confused by it, right? Exactly. Lauren, what's your shoe story? Yes, I'm... I mean, you put your foot out. <laughs> so the shoe and I... Hopefully not in your mouth. You stepped right you into it. You are really good at <laughs> Um... It actually, uh, uh, Christian Louboutin uh, created a shoe. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Louboutin shoe, but it's got a red bottom. So their red bottom uh, on the bottom of the shoe is red color. And he um, at first was creating shoes with all different colors on the bottom. And he wanted to have a trademark against, so no one else could ever have a different colored sole on the bottom of the shoe. And that went to the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. And what they decided was that just having a different color is not enough to set you out, you know, from the rest of the industry. And it would foreclose on a lot of people being able to create new shoe designs. And there are a lot of other um, effects that that could have. But they said if he, because he had generated enough consumer recognition on the red bottom, no one else really can make a red bottom shoe. So he, that's his source identifier is the red bottom of the shoes that he makes. That's really interesting. I've got a I've got a more esoteric question. Have you followed what what happened with um, Google and and um, uh, Oracle? The, like within the week, uh, Google won a massive Supreme Court case against Oracle, and it amounted to protecting software code. That's a big deal, I think. But I don't really understand the details of it. Did that cross your radar screen? Um. That did not. Um, but I don't know if I can speak to that specifically. But code is code copyright. Code is typically under copyright law. Yeah. yeah so maybe we, we can take this story out and plug it back yeah. into a podcast about copyright. Well, it sounds like you're anxious to ask a question or looks. Like yeah. You. Well, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm just, my mind is uh, kind of spinning here because uh, being in the um, risk management business, um, we have had several situations, uh, Lauren, where uh, we do get the the first phone call um, after a cease and desist letter is is received by one of our business clients, um, and uh, they they really had no intention. I mean, they they really didn't know what they did. Um, they uh, clearly um, unintentionally um, used uh, some type of a a trademark, maybe on their on their website, um, or maybe they you know, um, just uh, inadvertently, um, by mistake, just, you know, stumbled into what now was a cease and desist case. Like sometimes the stock photos will get you. Could be. Yeah, yep. could or... be. I, I've got a, a client that um, refurbishes computer equipment, and on his website, he had the uh, Intel logo uh, there, and, and he got, he got um, yeah, got... A letter sent over and and from the Intel legal deal. department. Yeah. Oh wow. Right, and so they had already at that point in time um, come up with some calculation as the damage 
that he owed them um, and so on and so forth. So um, what are some of your thoughts just as, you know, we have clients, business clients, um, what are, what are some things to maybe that, and I know there's obviously a catalog and it's becoming much easier to, but I, I think the standard, you know, small business owner doesn't even think about this stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know what are, are there a few other things and, and there is some insurance. There are some insurance products out there that do protect us against things like this. Um, but uh, we really have to, we have to, we have to do some thinking about it. So we transfer the risk accordingly as well. Yeah, so. And that, that domain, that common mm-hmm. general domain question that you're asking, I want to loop into that. And, and Lauren, maybe you can speak to this is because you made brief mention of this is appropriation of likeness with, with the advent mm-hmm. of, you know, the easy video and things like that. And, and, you know, we've talked about this when we hold live seminars is you get other people captured on video you don't have generally license to use other people's you know avatars like yeah likeness without Mm -hmm. their permission so what what sorts of things both in in terms of misappropriation from the the general common domain and then the likeness thing do you see and and how do we how how does a business owner address that what do we need to watch out for yeah Absolutely. I think it's a great point. Um, I would say I've never seen in my experience, anyone take, um, use a trademark inappropriately on purpose. Um, and if it is willful infringement, then you're looking at, you know, sometimes trouble damages, you can, you know, if you are actually using it, uh, someone's trademark maliciously, um, there are a lot of some pretty severe penalties for that. So I think it's mostly important to, um, just be aware of, you know, what you're putting out on your website, if there are things that could potentially be associated with another person, that you're just getting the permission. And it's kind of like, you know, we live in this consent culture of, um, you know, these are things that I think we're kind of moving towards anyway, but just making sure that you're getting permission with whatever you're doing, you know, just being cognizant of that. And I think um, that's not something that people were, you don't think about before. And and hopefully that's something that's going to change in the future. But um, anytime, if it's someone's name, if it's someone's likeness, if it's their product, but you're just getting permission before you're using it. So I'll give you an example of that. And I think a lot of companies do this is they'll say, you know, uh, representative clients and they'll put the logos of their clients up on their website or that they collaborate with certain industry partners and that sort of thing. Even though you have great relationships with these other businesses, you really need to go out and get permission before you start slapping their logos up on, on outward facing media. Boy, I see that all the time from a software company. I was just looking at, they did that. Look at all these big companies that work with us. And did I ever tell you my fish stick story? Oh, it's so good. Oh my gosh. All right. So this better be relevant. It's, it's totally relevant especially for these IT people who are listening right now. So years ago, I was involved with a startup IT company here in Colorado. And, and they, and we, I mean, it was a really small group, invented the fish stick. And so we, they named it that. They named it that because it was completely different from what it actually was. It was the then smallest USB flash drive in the world. And all they really did was have a really good idea on how that thing would work. And so, uh, you know, imagine coming up with that idea and how you're going to market it. And, and they didn't want to be the manufacturer of it. They really wanted the IP. 
so licensing it right talk about let's talk about that yeah because this is well that's really close so so the bottom line is i think they used all of everything you just said i think they had to get a patent right i mean i was just the guy going out trying to talk to these big companies and talk them into switching their camera cards and the the cards and the cars and i mean it was a really brilliant idea anyway they they did that and they eventually sold to a um uh, to a company in Israel and, and, and made a small amount of money for a really good idea. And it was great. It was great. But they had, they had the patent. They had a copyright on the name Fish Stick. They had, um, well, I mean, all that stuff, right? The trademark, I guess. I guess it's a trademark of the, of the name Fish Stick. And it never went anywhere. Right? Oh. It was bought by one of the big um, flash companies to squash it, to make sure that yeah. that technology was mm -hmm. never picked up by the rest of us. And so that's why we don't use that type of memory card. We use a different one. Slash or whatever, yeah. So I'm going to give you a two-hour answer question that you're going to answer in 15 minutes or less. Now, so <laughs> the, the thing no Carl challenge. just mentioned to me, mentioned, made me think of one of the more common agreements I know you work with, which is licensing agreements, whether it's someone licensing technology from someone or whether it's a client that's developed technology and wants to license it out. So speak a little bit to how licensing works and, and again, what the pitfalls are in terms of giving other people access to your IP and what you need to be careful of, what you want to watch for in an IP, you know, licensing related agreement. And how's that, how is that related to, similar to, or different from franchising? Because as I remedially understand it, franchising is kind of like a licensing of a business concept. Um, which is much broader than just like a, a limited technology, production technology or something like that. You're, you're really leveraging out your brand to someone else. And maybe if you know a little bit about that, you can speak to that. Definitely. So I think just to make one clarifying part, uh, point, a couple of clarifying points, um, patents are designed to protect the inventor and they're designed to promote innovation. Uh, copyrights are, are designed to uh, protect the author and their, uh, their purpose is to promote arts and um, literary concepts and things like that. Um, and then the purpose of trademark is consumer protection and it's designed to protect the consumer. So if we think about patent rights as their rights in the inventor, economic rights that the inventor has in their invention, whatever it is, um, the inventor will always own that patent for the life of the patent, which is usually 20 years. And the way that you derive economic value or further your economic value in that patent is by licensing it. So you would have an agreement that you would allow someone to use the thing that you've invented and then they just pay you a royalty. So that's one way that you would increase the economic value that you have in your patent. Um, if you think of copyrights as protecting the author and what we want to do is further artwork and, and further um, creation, uh, creative concepts and things like that. Um, if you have a copyright, you can license, you can allow, you would allow the license of your copyright so that people can continue to create art and they would pay you a royalty for, if it's the music that you've produced, um, you get the royalty every time the, the song is performed or any time that your art is displayed or, or published somewhere. And then as far as trademark goes, it's for the consumer, but your economic value is in the brand that you've created and your um, reputation and your goodwill in whatever industry you participate in. So things like franchising, 
your value is that I know that I would rather go to a Taco Bell and know what I'm going to get than go to someplace that doesn't look like a Taco Bell. I don't know what I'm going to get and I don't know what kind of experience to expect when I get there. So those are kind of uh, different ways to think about how you can derive economic value, but it's all the same idea, right? The same idea is that you own what the intellectual property is, what the intangible property is, and then you can allow other people to use it to promote whatever purpose the intellectual property was created for, and then you can still get economic value from that. So it allows people to, it incentivizes people to uh, create technology or to create artwork or to um, build a good brand for the consumer. You, do you draft licensing agreements and, and what would a good one look like? We do. We draft a lot of licensing agreements. Um, in terms of what it would look like, from my perspective, if I'm writing it for a trademark holder, um, I need to make sure that whoever I'm licensing to is going to uh, utilize the same type of high standards that I have. So they're going to still be making good products. They're going to be following whatever processes I say they need to follow. Otherwise, they're going to be diluting my brand. And that's another way that you could actually, actually you lose your trademark rights is if you just license it to somebody and then they just make a bunch of inferior products and they don't provide as good a service, then they're diluting my brand and that's going to make the value of my trademark go to zero. So you want to look out for, um, if I'm the, the inventor and the licensee holder, I, I want to look out for people who will be maybe paying me what I'm asking them to pay me, but reducing the value of my brand and possibly hurting other, other people, other, other clients of mine. What about, I mean, how do I protect myself if they go out and they just use my hard work without paying me? How do I track that? I mean, there's got to be ways that, you know, I can protect myself that way. I would say with a patent, that's one of the most difficult things. Um, one thing you can do is buy a product and disassemble it and see if it used the same process that you did to make your to make that product, whatever it was. Um, that's one way that you could see if someone used your patent. I mean, a lot of times it's just obvious, right? I mean, you could look at something and, and say, this is close enough that this is almost exactly what I have my patent on. Um, and those are, you know, that situation you would, you know, cease and desist and then you could file uh, claims against them for any damages that you suffered yeah, by their really, really um, big deal, and Especially in the software world where code can just be easily lifted and placed in other, you know, in other software and invisible to all software code is a really code. and software code is a very interesting one. There's a case um, uh, that it's, it's kind of a been going on, but Alice is the name of the case, and we could do an entire other show on uh, software code specifically, but it's not something that can be patented technically, um, but it's something that, you know, you could copyright, and then, you know, like you said, with a re-printing uh, of it, that I'm sure there are little nuances, I'm sure you can speak to that better than I can, but things that would kind of take it away from, that's not your copyright, this is how I've changed it, so it's no longer what you own. Yeah, fascinating. Fascinating. What, what, so that brings up a question just for me, ignorant outsider, the difference between a copyright and a patent? A copyright is, is the right to, sure. So a copyright is the right to reproduce um, your works of art. 
So a copyright, it has to be a work of art and it has to be fixed in a tangible medium. So that means you can't copyright an idea or um, a thought that you have. It has to be something that's actually been put into either like a pen to paper or, you know, painting, or if you've put it in a musical um, composition, those are things that could be copywritten. And the, um, your, what your value is, is in the reproduction of it. So it actually came from when the printing press was first made in England, um, authors of work were not getting credited uh, monetarily, but it actually promoted literacy throughout all of Europe. So it was something that they wanted to promote was people being able to make copies because there was so much benefit from it. But what our copyright does is our, our Copyright Act is focused on incent incentivizing authors and artists to continue promoting art. That's great. What, what else, guys? Well, along the copyright um, situation, I, we, we have a lot of graphic artists that we insure and who, who typically has the right to copyright something? So um, if our graphic artist created our logo with our specific brand and badge, um, is that ours to copyright or could technically the, the graphic artist copyright that and have, have ownership to it? That comes up a lot in websites too. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a great question. And that would be something that you would call Good Speed and Merrill for to make sure that in your uh, whatever agreement you have with your graphic designer, that that's considered a work mode for hire. And so um, generally, if they work, the person creating the art, you're exactly right. The artist is what we want to protect in terms of a copyright. But when it's something that you're creating for your employer, for example, then that would be the, it's called the work made for hire and your employer would own it. So you just, we would wanna make sure that we're taking steps in whatever agreements you have with the graphic designers of who owns what, when can you republish it? When can you reuse it? Are they allowed to use the same or similar uh, design with other companies? Those are all things that you would wanna get a lawyer involved with to make sure that all those concepts are covered. So one other thing I want you to, educate us about a little bit as we kind of close out this this podcast um, is probably the most common agreement I would imagine you work with in the intellectual property area, which is a confidentiality agreement. Perhaps you can speak a little bit to confidentiality agreements, you know, what to look for, when should you consider asking for one, and uh, some of the key provisions that people might not be as uh, attuned to. Absolutely. So um, I'll break it up again into the patent, trademark, and copyright lens because I think it's easier to think about it in those ways. Um, as far as a patent, when you're developing your patent, as soon as you get the idea, I would recommend that you go get a non-disclosure agreement or confidentiality agreement. And what the the purpose of that is that that uh, agreement is that you work with whoever you're going to be working with to keep developing your product, and you just. Uh, you explain to them that through the agreement, you guys are agreeing that anything that comes up in terms of what processes you're using, what materials you're using, people you're talking to, those are all, that's all confidential information. And you have value in that because the more that they know, the more that they can take your idea and go profit off it somewhere else. So as far as with the development of the patent up to the point of the publication of your patent, all of that should be kept secret. And that's why we would step in at that point to draft a non-disclosure agreement or a confidentiality agreement. Um, in terms of the copyright 
um, lens, uh, there might be a point where you would want a copyright, uh, a uh, non-disclosure agreement with your copyright. Um, maybe if you're developing some new music or something, once you publish a copyright, it's, it's out anyway. So it's kind of a similar idea. There's less reason for anyone to want to um, get an NDA in the copyright state, uh, space, but it might be something that's important to you to keep something secret until you get to that point of publication. Um, and then from the trademark perspective, um, a lot of times part of your, especially if you're franchising, um, something you might have is a, a, a big, a strong customer list or like a vendor list. Um, and those are things that you would want to make sure that your franchisees are not taking from you and using against you competitively. And that's less of a confidentiality agreement as it would be what we would call a non-competition or non-circumvention agreement. And that's basically saying these are things that are proprietary to me, these clients that we have or these vendors that we use, um, you need to make sure that you keep them secret for some period of time during our, our relationship and thereafter. And um, also you're not gonna take that information to compete with me after our relationship ends. So one of the places where that comes up a lot is in the consulting arena where people are being brought in to, you know, dissect a company and really kind of consult with or make the company better. The company ends up divulging a lot of, you know, open up the kimono, so to speak, and divulging a lot of its its inner workings to consultants. They want to protect that as well as the consultant wants to be protected against assertions that they've done something improper as well. So have, having agreements whenever you're engaging outside to a company as a consultant or in a consultancy capacity is critical to have a good agreement. Definitely. We learned so much from these podcasts. Thank you so much, Lauren. That was amazing. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great to be here. Great to meet you, Lauren. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. See you later. We really appreciate it. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today. Hope you enjoyed the information we shared. If you enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to share it with someone else and join us next time. If you want to meet with a member of the team, please contact us at info at expertnetworkteam.com. That's info at expertnetworkteam.com. If you have special topics you'd like to hear about, please reach out to us and let us know at the same email address. Again, that's info at expertnetworkteam.com. Thank you for joining us and have a great day. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We want to remind you that listening to this podcast does not establish a client professional relationship with any of the firms represented, nor does it constitute legal investment or accounting advice. And the views are those of the professionals only. Investment advisory services may be provided through ANI Financial Services, and securities may be provided through Genios Wealth Management.